0: In this episode, I am joined by Justin von Boydash. Justin recalls his upbringing in Soho, Manhattan, as the son of a multi-generational family of painters, immersed in the New York art scene, attending a specialist high school and engaging in study abroad programs across Europe and Asia. Justin recounts his childhood dreams of saints and spiritual masters and his early fascination with ancient Egypt and western occultism which saw him transcribing magical texts and engaging in rituals of evocation and divination. Justin explains why his conversion to Buddhism was inevitable, describes his meetings with great masters, and shares his passion for Vajrayogini practice and Mahamudra meditation. Justin also reveals why conducting dark retreat and studying Ati Yoga under Dr. Nidéchénag Sang has brought him to an experience of the nature of mind so powerful that he has departed from many of his views expressed in his book *Modern Tantric Buddhism*, as well as reduced his interest in propagating the Rapa lineage in which he is ordained. So, without further ado, Justin von Boyda. Justin van Boydash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today. I've just finished your book, Modern Tantric Buddhism, and perhaps we'll touch on some of the themes there. But before we do, can you tell us something a little bit about your upbringing? What was the context of your upbringing, your childhood? You write in Modern Tantric Buddhism that you grew up in an artistic household. To quote you, my father is a painter, and his father before him was a painter. My mother for a time was a weaver and designed clothing that she made. She later became an acupuncturist. I grew up in a loft in Soho in Manhattan in the 1980s. Much of our family life involved going to museums and galleries and other locations of culture in New York City. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay, yeah, thanks, uh, Steve. This is a a great place to start. Um, Yeah, so when I was, um, I don't know, about seven seven years old, my, my family moved to New York City. Um, my father had been an art professor, he was an artist, um, and uh, he he quickly tired of the art world, I mean, uh, the, the teaching of art, rather, and wanted to um, you know, really focus on his paintings, so we moved to Soho, which at that time was, uh, one of, you know, the place to be, so to speak, and um, you know Andy Warhol was around you know all the artists who were who were big you know uh, abstract expressionists of that time period were, were were in SoHo or around there uh so i grew up um <laughs> we grew up in a loft my bedroom was an old elevator shaft i'd have to walk through my dad's uh, studio and smell the turpentine and linseed oil and all this stuff uh you know every day to go to my room um and yeah, the, the arts were huge uh, in my my upbringing. For, for quite a long time, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a sculptor um, for a while. And, and in college, there's was this little bit of a kind of um, uh, slight conflict. I was very interested in Buddhism even then, but I was also interested in sculpture. And I think it probably was intersecting with the Vajrayana art at a young age that really made me curious about it, um, Middle school and high school is uh, really captivated. New York City also just has such great museums, and at the time, um, it was like a real cheap, easy way <laughs> to entertain your kids, I suppose, to take them to the museum.
0: And did you have any religious, particularly religious or philosophical context uh, within within your family? My. Family was
1: very my parents are very open. Uh they both my, my father grew up in Australia and he went to a, a school run by the um Christian brothers. And and so they're strict disciplinarians. They used to be, you know, beaten from time to time. And so pretty much when he, he went to college, he was just like, you know, forget forget that. And and I think with his interest in in early American abstract expressionism, he got a little bit into Zen, um, a little into the Hindu tradition. And so growing up, there were all these books on, you know, especially uh, Japanese painting, uh, you know, Chan Buddhist uh, style painting. Um, my, And then, of course, you know, during the, the kind of like New Age movement, um, you know, my parents were into all sorts of things. So uh, the Hindu tradition for a little bit, um, you know, indigenous forms of, uh, um, you know, spiritual practice. And for me, though, as as a kid, when I was growing up, they, they were really kind in that they said that they thought that spirituality was something that was very important and they wanted me to be rooted in something. But they said that they preferred that I pick and, you know, what that was um, and that whatever it would be, they were supportive. And so my whole... Um, Childhood, like early early adulthood, I guess you know teen teen years into early adulthood, was um, I was I was kind of very 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 uh, focused on spirituality and exploring lots of different things, and they were they were incredibly uh, supportive. Um, It was it was it was great.
0: that's very interesting. Could you say a little bit more about that that exploration? I know from a young age, eight or nine, you became very fascinated with ancient Egyptian religion and particularly its rites around funerals and 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 the dead and so on could you paint a bit of a picture if we were to drop in on you throughout your childhood what 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 does that exploration look like sure yeah well it was it was um i was
1: uh so i got into trouble once when i was in fourth grade and um my parents also you know kind of very (laughs) kind-hearted people i guess were were trying to figure out how to how to discipline me and um (laughs) so what they did was they were like let's go to the met and you can pick out a book you want, right, anything you want. And, uh, and you can, you know, and you can have it. And so as they were paying for it, that's when they were like, Oh, we heard that you did this thing, you know, at school. And, that, and that's not, not, you know, we, along the lines of like, you know, the, those aren't our values, we, we appreciate you not doing it. But the book that they got was uh, that I picked was EA Wallace Budge's translation of the Egyptian ancient Egyptian book of the dead. And so literally from third grade, I used to carry this book around with me to school and when we would have like independent reading time I would pull it out and it was really great because there would be the hier- hieroglyphs <laughs> there would be the you know transliteration you know and uh and then and then the english translation and I I was I was very very kind of obsessed so to speak at that at that age um and this continued um because my father was a painter. He was okay with me painting, um, you know, ancient Egyptian gods on the walls in my room. Um, so I had Anubis and Thoth and Horus and Hathor and you know, all these things. And, and I had full reign of his, his, uh, like acrylics to be able to work on, uh, on the wall. Um, and then, and then I became really interested in the religious practices, um, and started collecting translations of, uh, uh, magical papyrus you know and and then this kind of eventually led me to to kind of follow um you know the way these kinds of traditions influenced uh, uh ancient greek culture and roman culture and then from there ended up through the renaissance into this kind of like early uh, western magical and alchemical uh work which i also then became very fascinated with and and um Uh, My first year of college, um, worked as an intern for uh, this researcher named Adam McLean in Scotland, in Glasgow, um, transcribing early English uh, alchemical works uh, by him. And then afterwards, a little little work doing some uh, transcription of um, early translations of Marsilio Ficino magical texts. Um, So so that was was all very interesting, but it was actually at that time... um, Uh, so this was um, I suppose when I was 19 years old I was out in Scotland and while I was there there was a librarian who um, (laughs) was getting divorced and he wanted to have someone to talk to and I don't know why he wanted to talk with me (laughs) about it because I was only 19 but he was like let's go check out this place called Sammy Ling Uh, and um, and then you know as as we drove there he was crying and telling me about his divorce mm-hmm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but but we got to um got to Sammy Ling uh which was great um to see and this is the first place i connected with um Rang Jung dorjes um uh, mahamudra aspiration prayer um there and uh and at that time i was beginning to shift from interest in western mystical traditions to And I was already preparing uh, in in going to India in just a couple months as part of a study abroad program in college. But for me, the real issue was there really didn't seem to be a living lineage in the Western magical tradition that had been unbroken. And that was something that was really important to me at that age. And... I began my interests begin to shift more towards vajrayana because there is this you know living lineage that while in yes you know the that um, you know the tibetan uh, genocide you know uh, is you know really threatened everything it's, it's still you know for for all practical purposes uh, you know an unbroken uh, practice lineage
0: I'm curious did your interest in western mystical traditions extend into practice personal practice of say ritual and uh, Mm -hmm. meditation or was it was it focused on the textual you're nodding
1: yeah oh yeah the ritual like the magical ritual yeah i did i did um i've done i you know it's been a long time since i've done that but yeah i i had done you know magical you know evocations and 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 this kind of stuff um uh and also you know trying to work directly and you know i mean here i am or was you know this this uh young person uh feeling that they could work directly with the the translations also of these magical papyri um but i had um you know i carved all sorts of amulets you know out of out of oak i mean again this is the great thing about having a having parents who are artistic is just all this raw material around and i've always been a very kind of self-directed uh kind of person so carving amulets uh we would observe um for two or three years i made the family observe the end of the ancient egyptian calendar days (laughs) all this stuff which looking back must have been kind of intense but um but yeah it was uh you know there's i i don't know so there's a story like um before we lived in new york my my father was teaching at smith college in, in massachusetts and we used to go to Boston to the uh, museums there. And the first, the, so what my parents told me is the first time I ever saw ancient Egyptian art, I just started crying and was grabbing <laughs> these, you know, large granite statues and uh, wouldn't let go. And, you know, even with the security guard saying, you know, you, you can't touch anything, blah, blah, blah. There's clearly some kind of relationship that, you know, I, I, have slash had you know to to that uh kind of cultural practice uh religious practice Um, so there is something there um and i i think you know maybe we could say that you know there is some kind of like emerging spiritual need within me that moved naturally towards the most viable form of practice Um, because even even alchemy as a contemplative tradition um like i was never really interested in physical alchemy but the spiritual contemplative aspect of the practice still fascinates me um and there's actually something i would like to write um about um i one text i had transcribed was by um uh sir george ripley and it's a beautiful text on the Creation of the Philosopher's Stone. And what's really great at the end of the text, it describes um, you know, these, this this process of moving from um, black, you know, this black experience to this red. I'm sorry, red experience to white experience to black experience. And you find these, you know, very similar repetition of these colors and these lights in the Bardo uh practices uh and even in some texts around the practice of illusory body
0: so they they're i am still i'm still interested in it but i i don't i don't practice these things any longer when one thinks of occult practices or western mystical uh practices of various types you mentioned evocation mm-hmm. there and um you know one one thinks of the evocation of uh Various different spirits, for example, from grimoires and so on, mm-hmm. and perhaps there's a little overlap, at least in part, with certain kind of tantric or Adriana practices of that type. So I'm curious, did you have any uh, success with those evocations uh, in those days, or yeah. any experiences? So the most practical
1: uh, success I had, I was, I was, I was doing this work with. Um, so the, the ancient Egyptian name was Tehute or, uh, or Thoth is the god of magic. And um, my father at this time was having this kind of heart problem. And uh, it was very, um, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily a critical uh, kind of, you know, a health issue, but it was a consistent problem. And uh, I did this evocation and asked to understand what it was that was wrong you know that you know my father was experiencing what, what was the most the root of the problem and the what what basically came to me was this uh disturbance in his electromagnetic field which was causing his heart to um uh basically have an arrhythmia right and so over the course of the next couple of months, he was then uh, diagnosed with arrhythmia, and he and I asked him what it was, and he explained it's when your heart is, you know, it fires irregularly, but it, but it is because of an electrical impulse. Um, and then, then I told him I was like, oh well, I already know that. <laughs> And he's like, "What do you mean?" And I, I told him told him that whole story, and he was really surprised uh, and and interested. And and I felt, um, you know, um, you know, it's kind of like now with it you know Padreana uh, practice, like these nyam might arise, these experiences, and you, know, you note them, but you don't really make a big deal out of them, and you and you keep going. And that's, I mean, kind of a little bit of of what the tonality was for me then. Um, so that was a really good example of there being this capability uh, to access, um, uh, you know, from my perspective now. I guess you could say access uh, an experience of awareness that is able to um, cut to the heart of what may be, you know, going on. in, in this particular case, with my father's health. Hmm. Um, so, so the, you know, this is an example I think that that works.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting, and this. Interest in Egyptian magical traditions and Western magical traditions in general um, is not the limit of your unusual experiences. You write in your book I remember a dream I had when I was seven. An elderly yogin with a long white beard and long hair tied up in a top knot was surrounded by a halo of violet light. I remember very vividly feeling a sense of peace, comfort, and relaxation in the presence of this figure during my dream. Later, at various points in my life, I've had similar dreams involving specific Mahasiddhas of the past, including Maitrepa, Naropa, Shavaripa, mm-hmm. as well as unnamed beings. Yeah. This is to say that my relationship to the path that I'd found myself on feels innately familial. It is something I don't question because it feels so authentically real and constellated that I don't have any doubt about it. So what do you, what do you make of that? You've talked... Of this tremendous reaction to Egyptian, Mm -hmm. as a child, to Egyptian items, and now I've read here from your book about these dreams that seem to sort of precede your uh, connection to Buddhism, Mm -hmm. particularly Mm -hmm. in tantric Buddhism. Uh, What do you make of these? Do you do you see them as uh, some evidence of past life connection? Have you peered into that? your own Mm -hmm. practices or investigations or have as often is the case have people said to you oh i can see that you're this person or you're connected (laughs) to this practice or we had this relationship in a past life i mean that's quite commonly that sort of conversation it is
1: it is yeah so uh i mean yes like uh so uh, my personal feeling is that yes like you know this is a um an indicator of there being a close relationship to, especially, you know, early Vajrayana, uh, you know, that, that, uh, in, in this point, that, that period in time, right? I guess you can say that the seventh century to the 10th century in India is really, really fascinating one uh, for me. Uh, I, we could say, I have no doubt that um, I have had, you know, past life experience, especially in that time period, um, yeah, you know, when I was when I was in high school, I was a pen pal with um the present Lelung tulku, And um <laughs> so like I, you know, there was this Tibetan shop in Soho that was had a, a basically just a flyer this young tulku was raising money to rebuild this monastery in Tibet and so um I decided, oh, well, you know, let me reach out to friends and family and see if I can help. And so I I raised it raised about $3,000 and sent it to him and <laughs> we became pen pals We, were, you know right back and forth and then um and then he was invited to come to new york to teach at tibet house and um he looked me up and was like oh i'm in new york city and i was in uh i think it was either freshman or sophomore year of high school and we went for we went uh up to the met which they just renovated their um collection of buddhist art and as we were riding the subway up there he was you know he said he turned to me and he was like oh you know we've had you know definitely had relationships you know in the past and he you know gave me a dharma name on the subway all this stuff and and the funny thing is it's like you know it was great but then you know, cut to years later, and, you know, Dr. Nita has been doing all this work on karma mudra, one of the karma mudra texts he uses comes from, you know, um, one of the Tulku's, and and so this, it's just this kind of web of interconnected uh, relationship, you know, Dr. Nita Chanatsang is one of my teachers, and, um, you know, it, at first, it's a, these things can be a little surprising, but then uh, the way I've experience this is that's just constant confirmation of this uh you know different kind of uh relationship i feel like my root teacher uh anizamo and i definitely have had you know long um like you know this this inter penetrating relationship and with a lot of my teachers and and then it wasn't really until i began the practice of engaging dark retreats uh, which I started in um, 2021 doing fairly regularly, that then these visions sometimes of, um, you know, uh, in some cases past lives, in some cases with clarity, even some names. Um, uh, the Mazda my Maitrepa comes up quite a bit and has in these dark retreats, but then also in, in, in many, many dreams. And then sometimes even... Um, you know, other kinds of experiences too. Um and so I, you know, I mean, I don't I don't doubt it. I also don't, you know, <laughs> I don't need a throne or <laughs> it's not about like being recognized. Um uh, you know, for me it's just I think ultimately it it serves to to provide me with a sense of confidence that, you know, I'm 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 right where I need to be. Like, you know, I'm I'm on this path and uh thank goodness.
0: Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Do you have a sense then, you're saying about being on a throne and that sort of thing, that's usually the sort of thing a tulku might receive, uh, maybe, <laughs> yes. perhaps not demand, but might receive. So when you, when you think back to these connections, do you have that sense of perhaps, or have you been told that, there's, that you might be a tulku, for example? Um, no. yeah, I've never, I've never been told it, <laughs> but I mean, you know, there are plenty of people who have said it and I, um,
1: I can't remember the names, but I've, I've heard many people say it. And Dr. Nita said this, like everybody's a tulku, right? Everybody's a reincarnation <laughs> of somebody else. Um, I don't, you know, even if I feel like I have very strong, like specific connections and specific, you know, lineage practices and all this, um, you know, I don't know what any kind of benefit of there being, you know, any kind of formal announcement of that would be. And I, you know, that's not really, (laughs) that's not really my thing. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's safe to say though, that there are many, 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 I mean, you know, the whole Tolkien tradition is interesting, right? Because like there's uh, a, there are definitely parts of it that have been, you know, are political and, you know, uh, in that sense, maybe have deviated from, what the um you know initial intended purpose was so rather than you know picking people from very wealthy families <laughs> to be recognized as tulku's, you know the original thing was was actually trying to find the reincarnation of somebody um i do think that the tulku tradition has created a and, and then that level of institutionalization in in vajrayana buddhism has created a lot of problems and um if not only, I mean, you know, definitely for the Tulkos themselves, we see this, you know, uh, in my interpretation of what's been going on with, um, you know, His Holiness Karmapa. Like, it's it's not easy to have this, like, you know, super status as, uh, you know, um, um, kind of celebrity Vajrayana kind of thing and, and hold that, um, but yeah, I don't... <laughs> I don't think I'm a talker, or if I'm a talker, I'm a talker as somebody who doesn't need to be <laughs> recognized.
0: I'm wondering about your education in terms of your high school and college. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you w- w- would you give us a bit of a sense of of what sort of institutions you went to and what what was your experience of education at that time? Um, you study abroad program. You did at college sounds mm-hmm. very interesting indeed. And yeah. just a couple of the details you drop in your book about about your education maybe a little curious as to what sort of form it had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my high school education was just, it was kind of like a, you know, normal or, not, or whatever. It was a specialized high school focusing on math and science, both of which were not my <laughs> my subjects of, of uh, specialty. Um, uh, I was really into, um, you know, the arts and, and humanities in, um, The college I went to, Antioch, I I picked because they had this study abroad program in Budgaia that um, at that point had been going on since the 70s. And um, when I went out there in 1995, like the good thing about Antioch is it was on this quarter system. So you were expected to be on campus two quarters of the year. And then the other two quarters, you could be anywhere in the world doing something related to your major. So the first quarter, I was on the study abroad program uh, based in Bodh Gaya. Um, but I did about uh, a month of independent research in Sikkim, which is where I met my root teacher. Um, and then and then I spent an additional quarter um, living for some time in Varanasi and then going down to South India to Mangod to Drepung Monastery, which is where Lelungtuku uh, was going to be. But then it turned out he was in retreat up at uh, Gyudo. Uh, in Dharamsala. Um, so I traveled a, a, around India uh, by myself. Um, but then the other, other things I was able to do through that school was travel to Morocco. Um, and I, I, I did that to kind of explore the Sufi tradition a little bit. I spent three months uh, traveling through Mexico. Um, uh, for a little while, I worked uh, as a research assistant for the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Pre-Columbian Art. And so I was very interested in pre-Columbian art and and you know traveled around um uh, Mexico to do that. Um uh and then and then did a couple of these uh, uh independent study programs on transcribing still you know magical and alchemical work while I was still in college. Um that was great. I really, um, and again, there's there's part of me that um, this is very self-directed. So that was a really supportive educational environment to be in where I could just be left alone to pursue my own interests.
0: Hmm. Oh, fascinating. What was your major?
1: Uh, Religious. uh, It started off being religion and philosophy. And then I switched it just to religion because I realized I'm not, my brain doesn't work that way, (laughs) you know, just the the Western (laughs) philosophy,
0: although I find it interesting. I wonder if we might might go through a little bit some of your travels there and some of the the characters you met. And I'm curious at sort of what point you have decided to become a Buddhist. What point that conversion happened? Uh, I believe it was heavily influenced by this time in India, in particular. Yes, well, I'm also quite curious how how you uh, funded these mm-hmm. adventures and these travels. <laughs> yes, yeah. So. Um, uh...
1: When I, the first time I went out to India was in 1995 and, um, this program was split in three that I was studying the first, you know, the first but we studied the Theravadan tradition and, uh, it was great. I got a chance to meet, um, uh, uh, some really great, uh, Vipassana teachers, one from Burma, one from Sri Lanka. and That, that was very nice. Um, I met Chokini Rinpoche, um when we were studying Vajrayana and then and Pache came actually one evening to teach, uh, kind of, kind of the basis of Mahamudra. And what I didn't know then is that about two or three years after that, I would end up a student of his, uh, he was, he was really exceptional. Um, I still remember that evening very clearly. And then I went on this, um, study abroad, I mean, sorry, this, uh, independent research period to Sikkim, which is where I met my root teacher who was, a uh, um, a Sikhamese nun, a Tibetan Buddhist nun in the Karmakaji tradition. And it was with her that I uh, officially took refuge. And she was a little, she was incredible. Um, A real powerful yogini. Um, She gave the empowerments for Chinrezi and uh, Milarepa practice, Milarepa Guru Yoga. She taught all day into the night. uh, yeah, I mean, it was just this very, very, very natural, profound uh, connection. She was just uh, extraordinary. So it was really in 1995, uh, the fall of 1995, that, where I took refuge with her. And then after um, uh, college, I, I returned then to, uh, you know, do the Karma Khaju uh, And during that trip, she passed away. And I met another teacher of mine, uh, Pating Rinpoche, who was a great... Um, Kind of yogi, sorcerer, Lama, um, who was uh, born in Tibet. Actually, early he came down to Sikkim in the in the late 30s. So he he kind of missed the whole um, you know Chinese invasion. Um, uh, and actually, he ended up. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book so much, but he ended up giving my Dharma brother and I this illustrated text that contains all the visions for dark retreat. Uh, and before he could teach it, he he passed away. Uh, but years later, in um, 2016, I think it was, I met Dr. Nita, and I brought this text because I had shown it to many other teachers, Boko Jay, Gelsorimpa uh, all of these others, and they they were like, "Oh, this is in our tradition." And so I brought it to Dr. Nita, and the first thing he asked was, "You know, where did you where did you get this?" And I told him about Padang Rinpoche. And it turns out that Padang Rinpoche's teacher and uh Ani Geltson, um uh Dr. Nita, one of Dr. Nita's teachers, had the same teacher, which was uh, uh, Shukseb, um one of the greatest you know female Lunchintic uh masters of um the 20th century. Um so it was, you know, I I have met you know a, a lot a lot of teachers. I became a student of uh, the present uh, goshi Gelsa Prabhupada, who's one of the regents of the Karma kaju tradition. Um, and in those early days when I was in college, I, I'm kind of like this um, I guess, natural collector. So I, I had this massive collection of books on Western mysticism. And so I sold all of those <laughs> and, uh, and I actually had like a small... Uh, ancient Egyptian uh, Sekhmet statue made out of fans I sold that, and um, I I got something like it was funny. It was like twenty five hundred dollars for everything, and then I was able to make that last a year. Like I was in India, <laughs> like you know, with almost no money, um, and so I did that for for a number of years, um, uh, which was great. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of bedbugs and, and, in, in low quality hotels, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, basic food and all of this stuff, but, um, but it was great. You know, mm. I, I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: I wonder if you could take us back to those moments. You, you are arriving in India and so on. You're young, 1920, something like that. You're encountering all these figures that you've listed and you, you tell many stories about them in your book. And then you eventually you, you convert to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what what was that process like? What was it like for that 19, 20-year-old to land in that context and uh, experience all of that? And what was it that precipitated, or what was it that tipped you over into conversion? Oh, yeah, well, that was probably inevitable. Like, when I was in high school,
1: um, still, you know, in in New York, um, uh, I wanted to be a monk really, really, really badly. And... um, (laughs) So like you know i had a you know, there's this girl i liked and i had a crush on her and everything and she was super sweet and kind and sensitive and she was like well i like you too but you say you want to become a monk and we have this like a you know, very like sweet conversation about it um so this this kind of like you know internal <laughs> battle within myself to become a monk uh, was was boiling into my experience those early days of being in india it, I I honestly feel like it was a complete inevitability that that you know, I would just kind of fold right into you know conversion as it were. Um, uh, the process was supernatural. It was not, you know, there was no um no hesitation. it was it was um, yeah, it was a, the, it was hand in glove, as they say um so so that was um easy i mean you know even meeting all of these teachers in so many ways it felt like just you know it felt very comfortable there was no quote-unquote foreign you know element to it i didn't feel the need to that i had to adjust to things um was a, a sense of homecoming i think you could say
0: that's very interesting and that's not necessarily a universal experience. I think there can be quite a shock. I think people in that environment, uh, for the first time, you took yeah. to the to water. It seems.
1: Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, about going to India. So before going to India, um, I went to Morocco by my like by myself, and the whole plan was to cross North Africa. I was very interested in Sheikh Ibn Al Arabi, um, and you know. When I got to Morocco, this there had been a civil war that had just you know started uh, you know the more recent civil war in Algeria. so there was no way of you know crossing that way so I I spent time in Morocco traveling around um one-way ticket <laughs> kind of thing and and there I was um I was eighteen when I did that uh that was hard, you know that was a hard trip um it was good, you know. I I learned a lot. I saw a lot. I I you know lived through hard things. Um, and so when I was flying to India on that flight, I was like, oh, you know, really in a kind of just like you know materialist way, I was like, well, wow, the the economy of India is so much worse, right? All of this this stuff. There's more poverty. It's. I thought Morocco was hard. Boy, India is really going to be hard, probably, right? And the moment we landed, it was in the old, old international airport in Delhi. But it was like very kind of funky airport. I got out, and I could, you know, just smelling the air, it just felt familiar. And really, from that point on, and Lord knows, like I've had all sorts of really intense experiences in India. You know, getting all sorts of illnesses, and you know, having uh, all sorts of shady encounters. Um, But as a as a culture slash location, uh India, Nepal, Bhutan had always felt um felt like home, you know, and certain places, even 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 more specifically, like West Bengal has always felt really, really, really familiar. Uh, so even flying over it, like you know, I was I went to Sikkim uh, in Bhutan. Uh, In September, October of 2022, and just flying across India, and you know, you need to land in northern West Bengal, uh, you know, if you're going to go up to Sikkim, and just you know, again, seeing the trees, seeing you know the 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 way the farms are, seeing how lush everything is post monsoon, it's just it's that is the most soothing place uh, in the world for me. So I I definitely think at some point I was some like weird yoga and you know walking around there a long time ago but um yeah i've 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 never um it's just always been very very comfortable slash familiar
0: mm. and what about the languages did you take to them with a similar ease and uh <laughs> no. <familiarity? laughs> no i mean you know i can i can read tibetan in a very
1: rudimentary way um uh i so like book uh you know, I asked him about whether or not I should study Tibetan language, you know, formally. And uh, there's a place in uh, Darjeeling. So his his monastery was about um, 45, 45 minute bus ride or an hour bus ride from Darjeeling proper. Um, and there was a place called Manjushri Institute. Um, I don't know if it's still there, but a pretty good place to study Tibetan. And I know people who had, and I asked him and he was like, you know, look, you know, m- most of the things you wanna practice have been translated into English. Don't waste your time. Um, and so after Boko Jay died and I started studying formally with Gelsabrampache, I I asked him to get his opinion. And he was like, Oh, well, you know, you already know how to suffer in English. So why do you need to learn how to suffer in Tibetan? <laughs> you know, he's like, all languages suffering. And I was like, Oh, okay. So uh no, that that being said, like I definitely um, you know, I'm I'm trying to, I'm in the process of very slowly. Uh, working on this translation of a Mahamudra text that uh, Dr. Nita wrote. And I, I like engaging the language, um, but I'm also highly aware of the fact that um there's a benefit that I didn't waste years of my you know practice life learning Tibetan. Um also there was one year I was doing a retreat at Geltsapropaj's monastery in Sikkim, and I was sitting. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, I don't understand what all the young monks are saying outside. So it's easier to just you know, sit and you hear that sound, right? As opposed to knowing everything that, that is being said. So, uh, you know, it's, um, that's never been something that has been uh, a huge thing
0: for me. And I'm curious at, at that time, I think Tibetan Buddhism is known, one of the things it's known for is such a vast array of practices and variations of practices. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself drawn to certain practices in particular? You share the anecdote there in the book of, uh, with uh, Tsuma Zangmo, mm-hmm. every morning before breakfast, you'd go to her house and you'd sit with her with your. Dharma brother Eric, I think you're talking about, you'd sit there together doing uh karma biding or shine as it's sometimes called mm-hmm. uh, meditation and then have breakfast and then do other things. So, I'm wondering with any particular practices that you were you had an affinity for, you enjoyed in those early days in particular. I know since then you have done many things, but in those yeah, early
1: yeah, days, sure. yeah, those early days, you know, uh, so with with some of the So one of her specialties was Mahamudra, you know, as within her own practice. And this is really like Mahamudra and Chakcha, she gave instruction on without really kind of telling us what we were doing, which was great because um, it it was always a very natural kind of practice. Um, And then... Later, after she died, uh, and I started studying formally with Bokarim Pache, was an absolutely profound Mahamudra, you know, uh, teacher. Uh, in, in 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 receiving instruction from him on Mahamudra, there are multiple times where I, I recognize, oh, I've, I've I've been doing this already for for some time, because this is what Ani Zamo taught. Um So it that open spaciousness uh, was was really. Uh, key and fundamental and 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 now especially like you know atiyogamal mudra is really kind of uh my one of my main practices now um but shortly like one thing i was very 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 passionate about learning more about was vajrayogini so vajrayogini vajrabarahi um and then um shortly after she died uh, is when Elizabeth Bernard's book on Chinnamasta, Chinnamasta slash Chinamunda came out. So Severed-Headed Bhatryogini. And that book totally captivated me. Uh, and the hard thing is, is that practice does not exist in the Karmakaji tradition. They ended up waiting, um, I think, 20 years, close to 20 years, until um, His Holiness Second Treason was going to be giving, this was like 18 years, uh 18 or 19 years uh giving a series of vajra yogini empowerment something like seven or eight of them in upstate new york and i went to go see him to request that he include uchidma or or Chinamasta, um and he did so i sponsored that empowerment and then i i sponsored the the uh reading transmission and i also sponsored the translation of the text um and so over the years, I've received um, basically all of the Sarma Vajrayogini practices. You know, in the Nyingma tradition, there, there are a lot of kind of, uh, I've received a, a number of them in the Nyingma traditions, but, uh, but in the Sarma, like all of them. Um, and there's something about that kind of Dakini uh, energy. Uh, including that of uh, uh, the special protector Padumano Dusuma, who was one of Naropa's protectors. Uh, this, this form of form um is very, very uh, kind of um, holds a special place in my heart. And so this kind of slightly wild or very wild, <laughs> depending, you know, feminine bikini uh, style of uh, approach, energy. Uh, embodiment is really um,
0: really kind of key to me even still That's very interesting indeed I'm curious uh, receiving so many teachings from so many sources and being so thoroughly immersed as you you were during that period how does one organize uh, one's practice and navigating one's own personal I suppose practice or digestion if that's even the right sort of metaphor of those sorts of of those sorts of things I, I i think some people have to learn to practice full stop just learn and one of the first lessons is how to practice at all really and mm-hmm. then never mind what it is you then end up getting around to practicing so yeah, i'm curious what that journey was like for you especially in the initial years
1: yeah well some Tsum- of was was really um quite helpful in kind of you know showing you know this is how you practice you know so, um, you know, whether or not it's, um, so she started off with uh, teaching us, um, you know, the Guru Yoga. So there's a, you know, Guru Yoga Sadhana, which is fairly formal. And then the, you know, the chenrezig Sadhana from Tongting Galpo. And so this is a, a good example of deity yoga, right? And so she was able to explain, you know, the way deity yoga works and the emphasis kind of the structure of deity yoga and then the structure of uh, guru yoga. And then of course with these formless meditations like the uh um, you know practice of Mahamudra Chakcha, she was very um she made me copy out um uh the uh, flight of the Garuda by by you know she's like copy this whole book out. You know um and i already had done that transcribing early english uh texts on alchemy so i kind of already recognized the benefit of actually copying something out there's a, this, this kind of um uh, uh digestion of of text that happens in a much different way it kind of um, almost becomes integrated within you so she laid the ground for this in a really skillful way which meant uh, once she died, I was, and you know, right before she died, she kind of formally handed me to Bokor and and you know we, we had this meeting in Bodh Gaya um, when he was leading the Kaji Munlam there and teaching, he was doing this Mahamudra seminar there that I was participating in. and she she said, you know, this is my you know, this is one of my heart sons, and please, uh, you know, you know that you know my my health is declining. when I die, please you know, take him on as a student. Uh, so by that time, I think you could say that I was already primed enough to be able to, you know, receive, you know, whatever Boka uh was uh, going to teach. And at that time, it was Mahamudra, and I was in the in the midst of um, the Karmakaju, uh, Nundro. Um, so I had completed um, the prostrations portion in retreat with Padang at his retreat place in um, South Eastern Sikkim on the border of uh, Bhutan. And then at that point had started Vajrasattva in Bodhgaya with um Sumo Zangmo, Patang Rinpoche was there and Bokar Rinpoche was there. And she died while I was in the midst of that. And and after the Kaji Munlam, Boko Rinpoche said, come back with me to my monastery in Merik and you can finish Nunjo there and, and we'll keep going um <clears throat> and then after nundro he uh invited uh my dharma brother and I to sit in uh, he was giving the three year retreat empowerments for a number of monks from Sonata. and he said that we could both pick you know one wang and um and that would be what we would practice post um nundro and so i picked vajra Rahi and my my dharma brother picked Chih. And then we were like, well, can we sit on each other's barnets too <laughs> so we get two? And he was like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, it we went from that straight into Vajivarahi, you know, formal Vajra yidam practice, um, and practice, you know, the, the outer, inner and secret forms with him over the course of a number of years. Um and so you know what i'm saying i guess is that there was already the basis of you know how to practice was already established so so it was a real nice kind of seamless transition and then once you have that under your belt um what began to become really interesting to me to study were namtars right um you know, I, I i still find them really really I, I read them all the time um because it's helpful for me to understand the highs and the lows, the unique characteristics of people's practice, the the, the, the the challenges they've had, the heights And then that'll that that has informed me to better understand how to curate my own practice so that it's not that I'm picking up like well I've got mirror of light here. so it was a good example of a book that has a a a theme right like as a as a uh, Dzogchen theme right so each lineage has is themed so to speak their protector practices yidams guru yoga practices etc and i love them for the kaji tradition i love them for you know the nyingma traditions too and so I, i i kind of i've learned to be able to look to view myself well that my path intersects with a lot of these lineages. And 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 so I don't feel a tremendous amount of stress when I'm you know practicing nyingma things or or you know the the um uh like Padan who is you know you find in the karma Kaju and the Trikon but there are also a couple of nyingma sadhanas associated with her um you know the intersectionality I think this is what I've 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 come to see is like you know our, our practice is really about us right like and and yes, the lineages there exist as a skillful means, and that's a very beautiful thing. Um, but we're organic, and I think the thing that I've begun to see is I have these kind of intense connections with people in the Nyingma lineage and the Sakya lineage and the in the Khaju lineage, and it's okay to kind of weave through them. You know and and getting to know some of my teachers like you know the I know Geltsaprampache practices you know a number of Nyingma practices and his his uh um I think he his Vajra Kalaya practice I believe is the same one as the as and So there's you know there's a lot more fluidity especially when you get out to Asia and you see it's not just like oh I'm only Karma right? Sikkim in particular is sacred to Guru Rinpoche. So there's there's a lot of breathing in, like in and out of nyingma and Kaju. Uh, so that that's um, that is a really powerful takeaway for me. And it really isn't ironically until you get to the west that you find people who are like I'm just this, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like they've read too many textbooks on on vajrayana Buddhism, and so they just think that like you know I can I can only be Geluk, or I can only be you know karma or I can only be you know nyingma. Or Sakho or Gelu, you know, whichever. Um. And then I'm also personally very fascinated about this, like the this edgy intersection between Hindu Tantra and Buddhist Tantra from you know early on, like you know, fourth century to seventh century. And so there's I don't practice specifically any, you know, Hindu practices necessarily, but um, but I have been to Hindu temples that seem to have a uh early connection to some of the like you know the vajrayogini practice or or Lamo practice these matrika practices
0: that um seem to intersect you know yes very fascinating indeed and you've touched on one of the themes there of your book uh, modern tantric buddhism which is a, um how can i put it well you you critique actually lots of things you critique american buddhism and you critique the traditional institutions and structures uh, of, for example, the, the, Kagyu, the Kagyu sect, mm-hmm. and so you're 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 criticizing um, both both directions there. And one of the one of the points you raise about uh, American Buddhists is a sense of not quite being worthy for enlightenment, or not being uh, really qualified by virtue of being. I suppose, American and not Himalayan. In -hmm. fact, that's explicitly what you say. You say, well, there's a sense that if one isn't Himalayan, then one can't really do it properly. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's an interesting point that you bring out quite early in the book. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm curious about that. When you're engaged like that so deeply, what are the signs, maybe this isn't the right way to frame it, in which case, feel free to uh, Mm -hmm. say so, of success or perhaps progress or... In these practices, once practicing as you are so much so diligently in all these different traditions with these great teachers, what sort of things did you notice happening to you or changing to in you or your perception as you as you went through this process? Mm.
1: Yeah. Okay, this is a good question. So I mean, yeah, there there's certain practical things to 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 look for, right? Um, <clears throat> there's um so there's dream activity. Right. This is one one really useful way of, of being able to kind of understand um especially the connections, right? Um there's a lot that is revealed in our dreams around uh the specifics of um the way our practice is going, the benefits of of you know, the benefits meaning uh quote unquote success or or making progress in practice. So there's there's that. Um There is how we are how we are off the cushion, right? On the cushion is as you know. I, I don't want to say easy because that's misleading, um, but it's off the cushion, which is where you know the rubber meets the road, so to speak. There's, um, you know, it's as if to say, and I, I I can't remember if I used this metaphor in in the book, but you know our. And actually this this came from this uh dialogue with uh adam McLean and Mona. i was working with him on his uh on this alchemy work i asked him you know what what is the um what's the biggest takeaway you know from all of your work you know kind of like give it to me in a nutshell and he was talking to me about this uh the relationship between spiritual practice and spiritual process and this is something that's really remained close to my heart, and I feel like uh, I think there's a lot of truth to this: that our our practices are are like a scaffolding that's necessary to to erect in order to build something, right? And so, so you have the scaffolding, which is you know nurturing, supportive, um, you know, provides a place for us to train in our practice. But as this you know, building or whatever it is that's being constructed, at some point, we need to let this scaffolding go, right? And, and then the building just is. And so this, there's this very internal, individual process that happens, where as we're practicing, we're generating something within ourselves, and we have to be able to listen to the way that that is happening, so that we're not just getting, um, our practice isn't rote and unconscious and disconnected, listening to the heart of this process that's being generated within us through the practice. And when these two are able to meet, right, there's this real profound sense of embodiment that happens so that we can be out in the world and We're very attuned to the fact that we're still able to be involved in the practice, whether it's deity yoga or or non-conceptual meditation practice or guru yoga, um, that that sense of connection, I could say maybe like, you know, the sense of mystical experience continues post- you know getting off the cushion into other things. And so I mean this is the thing. Like I've I I'm not that I've never understood it, but I'm not particularly interested in like congregational Buddhism where everybody kind of comes together and they they you know perform a ritual together and then they go home and you know get into the same arguments they've always gotten into and stuff like that. I'm I'm a lot more interested in the the individual kind of mystical experience of you know practicing deep right into who you are into your relationship with the environment into the way you breathe into the way you you apprehend phenomena and when we practice in this way you know treating ourselves as the crucible in in an alchemical experiment right then and holding that container really really intentionally then I think it's pretty natural that experiences will arise that will help confirm that we are moving along you know the way that the the you know sometimes commentaries will say or that the you know the way that the tradition itself kind of reflects back at us but but the 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 kind of key point is like we have to take ourselves seriously from the get-go right rather than you know infantilizing ourselves because you know there is uh, a decent amount of infantilization of western you know uh, vajrayana practitioners from you know the tradition itself that i think we need to just you know like plug our ears to and maybe even close our eyes to and just ignore that and just go 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 and you know the biggest kind of thing as of late that i use is remembering how i suffer right we are we are always you know it's not that we're always suffering in such a debilitated way but we misapprehend phenomenon we experience attachment we we fear aversion and so really kind of coming back to this very basic uh you know recognition of my own suffering my own mortality right relationship to death the relationship to impermanence to kind of keep us going keep us going keep us going is that was that you know helpful
0: it's very interesting indeed and i wonder if you might say something a little bit more about this infantilization yeah, uh, point, <laughs> yeah because sure. that's interesting i wonder if you might be even perhaps specific about that the sorts of uh infantilization that you've seen or sure
1: um, yeah oh yeah no i mean you know I've, I've i've had all sorts of conversations with people like you know for example in sikkim who were like oh you know uh, if a western person does a three-year retreat then you know they really need to do it three times to equal what a tibetan or a Sikkimese could do you know um uh the, there is there is often unfortunately an assumption that if you don't know the language if you don't know the culture you don't know what's going on right and you know that's not true and i think that You know, yes, as as you pointed out earlier, that, you know, for some, making this this process of conversion to, you know, the practice of Vajrayana feels like, oh my gosh, there's this whole huge world system, and it is a whole huge world system uh, that one needs to immerse themselves in. But I am going to argue that I think that there's, um, we don't need to imbibe the entire thing. Right, like, the, we don't necessarily need to adopt all of the cultural practices that you might find, you know, in the like, for example, Indian Himalayas. Um, you can take the the instructions, right? What is what does it mean to practice Vachavarahi here in Brooklyn, right? Or what does it mean, or my work, uh, you know, on on as a the head chap on uh, on on Rikers Island for New York City Department of Correction, like, what does it mean to you know bring my protector practice? To that space, or you know, to to Mahamudra or Ati Yoga, and, and in my office, you know, when I was working there, taking time to just settle into that in in this very unique place, right—an island with nine jails, filled with just we could say New York City problems, <laughs> New York City cultural problems, New York City economic problems, New York City you know um, criminal justice problems. At that point, you know, Himalayan culture, any kind of culture. Uh, outside of the, the the kind of diversity of of an island like that, it um, d- doesn't really have um, a uh, a tremendous you know tremendous importance. If if I could even go that far, you know there there has to be some kind of translation that happens between. Um, what we're practicing and where we find ourselves in in the moment. This came up actually in in Lama Brad's um preface uh to the book um where you know he he does, he names right that that there is this uh, critical tone in the book which I think is a healthy thing. And and he's he's quick to to name that this is not a an attack on, for example, Tibetan culture, right? But it is it is more the the byproduct of my own processing, um, how to have a relationship to this intensely kind of cross-cultural, my own, intensely cross-cultural relationship to Vajrayana Buddhism. So I've always, I mean, I, I love Tibetan culture, right? But I'm um but I'm here, right, in Brooklyn and in, in New York City in 2023. And when I was working as a chaplain, um, you know, often quote unquote ministering to people who did not identify as Buddhist, let alone you know, Vajrayana Buddhist. And so holding this kind of understanding of um the skill, like a sense of skillful means that is required in cultural translation of dharma from a very intensely specific location you take like a yogini tantra kind of perspective or an ati yoga type of perspective and then and then what does that mean to the person you might be you know serving or helping or or talking to or teaching here um that being said when I go to Sikkim you know the Gautza makes me wear my, you know, I have to wear my kind of, you know, Nakba or you know, robes and all this. And and I love that, you know, and I love that, you know, interacting with the culture, you know, and and, and being, uh, you know, I've been very well trained, I guess you could say, you know, uh, there. Um, but I also understand what is necessary here and what isn't so much. You know and I think ironically for for Dharma practitioners, sometimes it's easier to learn the cultural practices than let this kind of you know seed of Dharma transform their uh, their the, their perspective, their you know experience of mind and awareness in the moment. It's easier to just say, hey, like I just bought this like cool Tibetan jacket you know or or I'm learning Tibetan um than it is to begin to transform your own mind, you know. Uh, and sometimes it's intentionally easier. other times it's unconscious, right or the 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 pain of um, contemplating our impermanence or the the discomfort of uh, really kind of disrooting, dislodging, ego clinging. You know is is a lot harder than just um, you know learning a new language, which I'm not saying that's super easy, but um it's easier to learn a language than it is to let go of ego clinging.
0: <laughs> what are you thinking? Mm? Oh, what are you thinking uh, about that? About about yeah. what? What I just said. Um, well, whether it's easier or more difficult, I have, I I couldn't I can't judge that. Um, mm-hmm. sir, I certainly haven't. I don't think successfully achieved either of those. So <laughs> I um, I'll have to take your word for it. You know, in your book, Modern Tantric Buddhism, I'll quote you here in a moment. It seems to me your goal, what you're trying to achieve is this idea of cultural enculturation, actually, is the word you mm-hmm. use. And to quote you, you say, in the fall of 2017, I was given permission to transmit the Rapa lineage mm-hmm. and to offer a variety of impairments and transmissions related to this tradition. This is something that i've begun to work on codifying i'm in the process of discernment around the formation of a recognized religious order that holds the hybrid tantric germ that informs the rapa lineage while it also speaks to how such a lineage might arise in an embodied and authentic manner here in the west and i think that's a that's a fair summation of the mission statement of what of of the sorts of questions you're asking Mm um you know and it is you are i think asking lots of questions in the book it's it's not precisely a manifesto. It's a sort of, mm-hmm. as you said, a fruit of your process uh, thus yeah. far. In fact, yeah. you, you insist that the book ought to be thought of as temporary, mm-hmm. and something that one, in fact, forgets. Uh, you, you also write that in the book, which is interesting. What is this Rapa lineage? In 2011, you were ordained mm-hmm. in the Rapa lineage by Goshe Gelsab Rinpoche, as you pointed out. Now, one hears these terms, Rimpa, Rinpoche, lama, geshe, lepon, and so on. Perhaps you could say a little bit about that lineage. What drew you to that? Why did you decide to ordain twenty eleven that's gosh almost 20, almost fifteen years from your initial time in India mm-hmm. now you're ordaining had you ordained in something before? Uh, why did you decide to take those vows and what what are they and what does it mean et cetera
1: yeah um okay so the i almost became i almost became a monk um in um I guess like uh, 1997, 98. Um, my root teacher, <laughs> so a uh, Padum was was ready to do it. Um, and the, the one he's you know, said, "I don't have scissors, so you have to go to Gangtok and get scissors, so I can I can cut your hair." And so I said, "Fine." I went to go to Gangtok, and it was you know a little bit of a uh, jeep um, bus ride. And so then I decided, oh, well, I'll visit my root teacher and let her know I'm doing this. And she, so I told her and she was like, oh, that's a terrible idea. You know, you shouldn't do that. Um, you know, it's just going to create all these obstacles for you. Um, uh, and she's like, you know, if you want to be uh, a monk, hold all that internally. And so, so that worked for me at the time. I was like, okay you're probably right <laughs> so went back um putting up JS where the scissors were I told him it's not happening he was like okay, no problem <laughs> and I went on um over time um, I guess you could say like I I just became increasingly interested in in more of this kind of like yogic, uh, uh style of practice. And and in the karmakaju tradition, you know, they don't so in the nyingma traditions, they're napas right? And so there's a real like you know uh definitive uh kind of avenue of, of practice around this. In the in the karmakaju tradition or the kadju tradition more broadly speaking, there's the repa lineage, which uh kind of goes back to milarepa right? And and so this um you know yogic uh lineage um, that you know essentially also goes back to Tilopa, and Naropa, and all the other Mahasiddhas. And for me, uh, I've I've always found that the Mahasiddhas themselves have embodied this open, dynamic way of practicing and practicing with whatever is happening right now, not only in terms of you know our psychosocial uh you know ma- makeup, uh what, what we're experiencing, but in the world, in society, you know, much, uh, much more broadly. So uh, bringing, you know, people of, of you find Mahasiddhas who are people of every single caste, every single social location. Um, and that to me seems to speak much more um, openly and dynamically to what we find in, in the world today. And so I became, you know, increasingly interested in this. And I guess we could say that the practices that I were it was increasingly drawn to. So after the, uh, you know, the completion of, um, you know, the the Padraigini practice, then moving into the six yogas of Naropa, and you know, more Mahamudra, and receiving a lot of the Indian early Indian um, transmissions of the early Indian instructions on Mahamudra that I then asked Gyeltsu Rinpoche to confirm this kind of, you know, rape ordination. And, you know, he was very interested in this, too, because, um, you know, it's not very common. Like, I, I, I don't think he's he's done this for any other of his students. And um, uh, apparently the previous Tengo Rinpoche was, was, he did this for for a handful of people um, in the 70s. Um so I felt at that time, um, I want to kind of keep this alive as an example, you know, for, for people, right? Some people want to be monks. And then when you come here to the West, the Karmakaji tradition is primarily um, monastic in point of orientation, right? So I wanted to be able to offer something that is an alternative, uh, or at least model something that, that is an alternative to that. Uh, which is why I, I um, initially requested the the rape ordination from Galceranpache in in 2011, and then um, and then later, um, as a continuation of this, it it just felt like a natural thing to to move this even further, like. Uh, you know, and in I still remember very clearly this this trip to Sikkim where I, I asked us of Gyaltsab Rinpoche about um, you know having receiving his his blessing to confer this list of empowerments and uh, you know and transmit this and um, there was a young kempo who was translating for me at the time and I had gotten to Sikkim and I had asked him as Gyaltsab Rinpoche uh about this and he's like well give me the list of you know longs you want to give and uh and when do you leave and i told him and he said okay i'll have an answer for you by the time you leave and uh on the last day um i asked him if he had an answer and his answer was yes you know you can do all of this and the young campo was like what like what did you say (laughs) kind of thing and uh so That, to me, was, I mean, especially coming from him, one of the heart sons of 16th Karmapo, you know, the region of the lineage, like this was, uh, uh, for me, meant that with his approval, right, that that this is important, right? Um, And so this is something, you know, I've been focusing on. I'm not, let's just put it this way, like, you know, so we all change and I've changed since this book has written, uh, has been written, written and I'm even, I could say I'm less interested in the propagation of anything outside of like the nature of mind. <laughs> so I still give Wong's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, you know, a long uh, after, after this, uh, you know, recording is finished, but the, uh, and I, 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 I have transmitted rapa ordination to a couple of people, uh, who, for them, it is very important. It's, it's. There's something about this, you know, way of manifesting themselves that feels very authentic and important to them. And so, so I've done that. Um, I think things have changed quite a bit in terms of my own relationship to these things, and some of this actually has to do with the environmental crisis, like. I don't know that where we're going to be in two hundred or three hundred years, you know, as a, as a human civilization. I think where I've gone since writing this book is more towards, uh, actually, more of a model that you find um, that came up with Kempo Gangshar and Trungpa Rinpoche when they were when when Trungpa Rinpoche was still in Tibet. Kempo Gangshar was one of Trungpa Rinpoche's teachers and. Uh, he you know as it became very clear that the chinese were going to invade they both decided you know now is the time to really teach dharma very freely because of all of the suffering that's going to happen at the hands of the chinese so many people you know they had the sense that so many people were going to die and there's going to be tremendous suffering and so this meant you know they kind of like open the floodgates so to speak and just teach freely teach freely teach freely. And I do feel like to some extent, um, this is just where we are in, in, in terms of our human, uh, you know, our global condition right now is the, the the world is so unstable, our minds are so unstable, the economies are unstable, the geopolitical situation is unstable. Um, what is going to happen in terms of a livable planet is unstable. All of the spiritual and emotional suffering that that causes is present. Um, we just came through this, you know, massive pandemic. That, um, but I mean, you know, this it was a huge, you know, global and historic event. Um, I'm less concerned about propagating a religious tradition than I am helping people to recognize their mind. You know, recognize the nature of mind. So. Um I guess the jury's still out on about how far I will continue to go in, in in the direction of the Repa tradition. Um, what's more meaningful to me is this um propagation of Ati Yoga, Mahamudra, and you know, and then dark retreat practice in particular, um, because it is so transformational so powerful and when people have the ability to be able to access that experience then the the direct manifestation of Rigpa becomes um uh fully known and and then it's not to say oh and then you're all done but it but it is to say then you have a very clear roadmap with respect to where to go and that is more important. That's almost like giving every single person a compass than it is like giving you know people access to a particular religious tradition. And I think that that, that seems like a, a better skillful means to me than what I previously thought.
0: Mm, that's a very interesting development. And so if I heard you right, you said you ordained as a raper to make the point that and to demonstrate an alternative to being a monk. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that what you said? That's,
1: that's correct, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and because again, for for me, like I didn't I didn't see before an alternative, right? So I wanted to become a monk. I, w- I was serious about my practice. My practice was very kind of a, a natural thing. I wanted to give a lot of energy to it. And so, one, you know, when the presentation is only a monastic uh, kind of presentation, that seems to be the only way to to become. You know, if I'm serious about my practice, then that's what I need to do. And then I came to see, oh no, 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 no. If, if I want to be serious about my practice, I could do anything, right? But this thread of practice is really interesting to me. Milarepa, Rechungpa, you know, um, you know, Lama Shang, um, you know, this this yogic tradition um is world, I mean, still just, I mean, you know, again, I, I, I have a lot of respect for the monastic tradition. And I don't mean any disrespect to it, but personally, I find the yogic traditions are much more compelling and dynamic and um, skillful because, you know, again, there's this this bringing in of the totality of um, you know human experience and human problems, right? Being in relationships, having kids, relationship to sex, relationship to perhaps intoxicants, relationship to all of these things that we find in the world um so to bring practice to all of those is um is very powerful
0: and i'm curious and i know we're we're now more or less at the end of our time so yeah. i'll ask you this question and then perhaps i'll tease some of the things that i've still got in store to ask you sure. uh, for the sequel um so who to whom did you imagine you were going to make the point or to whom were you going or did you imagine you were going to demonstrate an alternative to monastic uh Ordination, who did you have in mind? Oh Which... yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I had anyone in mind. Um
1: the one thing I've I've learned about people who have made changes broadly speaking. So not just in 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 Vajrayana, and but also in science and in, in in art, right? So art is a art is a really good place to actually have this conversation because it's like a second language for me. Um a lot of artists who have broken new ground just modeled what they thought was important by doing it, right? And either that influences other people or not, right? But what's important is that, that kind of individual artistic expression, right? So Jackson Pollock, right? Jackson Pollock didn't necessarily, um, you know, consult the marketplace. Oh gosh, you know, this, if if I dribble paint, you know, onto a canvas that's going to be very marketable, become very famous, very rich and very successful, right? This was part of his, you know, the the way he came to paint and the way a lot of artists come to do what they do has a lot to do with these, you know, internal uh, uh, vehicles of expression, right? And so for me, this is all that this has been is, a, is the same kind of like, you know, open expression. There's a dialogue that happens. There's a dialogue that has to happen, right? Because the, nobody is born in a vacuum. Nobody arises in a vacuum. We, we're, we're all kind of, you know, come to the present moment from a, a wide variety of different kind of streams. But the moment you start doing something a little different, right, there needs to be conversation because there's reaction, right? So just as much as as within the arts or, or music, anyone... Anytime any, anyone starts doing something different, people will begin to ask, well, why are you doing it this way? Well, I'm doing it this way because this is, this feels natural, right? This is an extension of myself. But the thing is, is like typically when something is an extension of ourselves and it's um, authentically rooted, right? And it's, it's not artificial, there tends to be applicability in other directions as well, right? And so recognizing that... Uh, I, I came to to kind of see that that you know the the critique I was involved in was a, a manifestation of my own kind of personal practice. It was also something that was very much on the minds of other people, right? And so, which is you know encouraging sometimes. At other times, I don't particularly uh, you know care much for for the larger conversation or the larger arguments that happen because uh, I'm I'm very much kind of like a uh, you know. Uh, solitary practitioner in in, in that way uh, even though i have students and all this um, stuff but the I, I i never set out to make change i set out to be me and you know that's all i've been doing is moving more fully into myself more fully into myself more fully into myself in my practice and um and this is this is how i am embodied right now you know so it wasn't like a martin luther kind of thing where like a series of like a treatise of being like you know this is everything that's wrong and i'm gonna nail it to the to the temple doors um because that that has always been um like pedantic <laughs> to me you know like that 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 method of of engaging things um again, like, you know, I think the book was meant to be a conversation starter, right? And to see what happens from there. And and what's interesting is is not too long ago, I was in San Francisco, and I was meeting with one of the the publishers of one of the big Buddhist magazines. And we were talking about this, this topic of like, you know, Vajrayana, like, you know, here in the West, like, where is it going to go? you know what is it what does it mean um, you know you have this very interesting thing happening right now where a lot of people of the boomer generation who are very involved in bringing vajrayana here either either western people or you know tibetan teachers are approaching the end of life right and so the question is 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 if we truly value this where is it going to go you know and in whose hands uh, you know who gets to hold it now you know and and then what does that mean Right? Like, I, th- I think that um, the one thing is when 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 we look at you know, Vajrayana transitioning from the Indian subcontinent to Tibet, right, there was a lot of cultural translation that happened into the Tibetan cultural milieu. And so it stands to reason there's a similar amount of that that, that, that is bound to happen, before, you know, as it comes to the United States or to the UK or to continental Europe or to, you know, Central America, South America. Australia, uh, you know, New Zealand, um, and it doesn't mean that everything needs to be changed radically, but but you know, cultural conversation and and trade offs and and uh, different kinds of inspiration and change is is natural, right? And so my existence and all of this is just part of that.
0: Sequel. I think we should do one. I'd like to talk to you a bit more, maybe about this last point here and this evolution you've had. Perhaps if I'm reading between the lines and correct me if that's wrong, this isn't meant to be another question, but if it it ends up being that, that's okay. But uh, that you're perhaps a little less interested in the project of importing the religion than you were perhaps even when you wrote the book. Mm-hmm. that now you have a different orientation that's you're nodding that's actually I fair think so.
1: i think so yeah oh. yeah i think so yeah i'm, I'm out of the import out, export business <laughs> and maybe into maybe i'm a, maybe i'm a farmer now right does the seeds have been planted right and so now what right if the dharma seeds have been planted here uh in in, in my particular case right in the u.s then what what to do right We we can't ignore it Right? You need to cultivate it. But yes. the soil is different here. The elements are different here.
0: Of course. But that's, that was also true. You were making those points when you wrote the book. I'm curious what knocked you out of that, the orientation uh, that is, is, is more clearly represented in the mm. book, this idea of import, the import-export, yeah. as you put, of, of how do we get, as you're asking that question, you know, what's Buddhism what yeah. going to look like from Tibet if we take it into America? And how, what knocked you out of that into what you're describing now?
1: I think, uh, (laughs) so I think Ati Yoga and Dark Retreat. Like, I I think that really, like, uh, what I'm a lot less interested in now are the structures. You know, I'm much more interested in uh, creating space for direct experience, like, full stop. And then people go with that. Like, you know... Have direct experience of the nature of mind, have that direct experience of Rigpa, and keep going with your lives, keep going with your practice. And whichever way that goes, you could you could become, you know, you could be ordained, you could be a repa, you could be a nakpa, you could be nothing. Um, but I'm I'm yeah, I guess we could say that the process, especially of, of doing all this dark retreat practice over the past two years has changed the way I think um, about my own practice, but then what I'm interested in, uh, in in the whole Dharma world in particular. And so in a way, my my own practice has become a lot less form-based because of the, um, I could say, the power of, of the direct experience of the nature of mind, you know? I'm being ruined.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that's very interesting, and I appreciate you sharing that reorientation, which sounds like it's in process to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You mean to say that you had experiences on dark retreat and practicing or experimenting with Ati Yoga, experiences presumably of the nature of mind, that's what you referenced, that eclipsed or reframed anything that had come before. You're nodding.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. So um yeah, like the the practice of dark retreat um showed me the immediacy of the nature of mind, slash Rigba,
0: in the way that arises. And that um For, for me,
1: right, in this moment, that supersedes any kind of ritual. Like that is just, that eclipses, you know, the whole structure even of, you know, the tantric Buddhist path, you know, and I want to be really careful to, to you know, I'm not saying throw that away, but the two are not equivalent, you know, they're, 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 they're they relate and there are these points of contact, right, but, um, what i've come to experience has just totally changed um my relationship to you know my own past so to speak my own training um and and it's not to say i'm still trying to figure out what that means it's more that it's it's not about the figuring out right it's not about the application of kind of a um speculative logic oh i wonder if dot, 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 dot. this is more like you know no i i you know let's all just rest into this and then you know from that that place of uh deeply resourced open awareness this is where everything arises this is where you know the 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 new lineage growth in in every lineage and new lineages who knows that you know it's not my place to <laughs> to name these things right But um that's you know the essential source of it all um and that's that's what i'm i'm much more um mean that's my focus i guess is just you know uh returning and returning and returning and and nurturing a direct relationship to that uh and then whatever whatever arises from that you know interestingly enough i do believe we'll arise appropriately, you know, with the, the the necessary skillful means. I think my point is is like there doesn't need to be a tremendous amount of thinking or plotting or, you know, conceptual designation to what comes next, what comes next will just naturally happen. You know, But I do think that it is likely that what will come next in Vajrayana and the West will be a more Western Vajrayana um but I think the most authentic way for that to happen is to just let it arise without too much planning right too much um plotting too much uh, intellectual speculation and just let it happen so who knows
0: that is quite a departure from from what you wrote in the book very interesting indeed yeah thank you very much Justin and so in the sequel, I'd love to talk more about the Dark Retreats, sure. which, of course, um, you conducted under the guidance of, uh, from what I understand, Dr. Nida Chanak Tsang. And, mm-hmm. and also you're, you're planning to set up a Dark Retreat practice center mm-hmm. uh, in collaboration with Dr. Nida Chanak Tsang, right. which is very interesting. I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, and also, I think your experiences, if, if you don't mind talking about them again, uh, of in the hospice, your hospice time and in your time on Rikers Island. And all that, all that that led you into and all that you learned there and its consequences, that, that would be very, very cool. And I mean, many other things we could discuss, but that's just a selection, uh, <laughs> would you be up for that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a pleasure talking with you, Steve. Great. Right. Yeah. Justin Von Boydash, thank you very much. Thank you. Take good care. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast.